Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Sam Lathy is the co-founder and CEO of Bipit. To use Sam's own words, he went from being a complete financial screw-up to becoming a trusted financial advisor. On this journey, Sam realised that most people have no or very limited knowledge and support when it comes to managing their finances. Did you know that money is the number one cause of stress for 60% of people? Sam explains that young people receive no financial education in school, most people start their professional careers in debt, and later in life fall into troubling financial situations or are just unable to afford key life events like buying a house or having a child. Sam wanted to change this and give everyone access to the financial guidance they need, so he founded Bipit. Bipit work with employers provide one-on-one financial coaching, helping people to better manage their money and plan for the future they want. Hey Sam, thanks for coming to the show today. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Thanks, Gray. Thanks for inviting me on. Of course. So look, today we're going to chat about BIPIT and financial education and well-being. Um, and I believe you're someone, I've, I've listened to you speak a few times before, and I believe you're someone that's had like an interesting, uh, sorry, interesting relationship with money, like over the course of your life so far from kind of both ends of the spectrum. Um, from, I think, you know, having your own struggles earlier on as a, as a musician, as well as then actually advising people on, on their finances. Um, I just wondered if you could just, um, I could share a bit more detail about that journey. Yeah, no, absolutely. Happy to. And I guess those are the two bookends <laughs> to my <laughs> journey. Um, so let's start, um, I guess, at, at the beginning. Um, I used to be a professional musician many, many years ago, more years ago than I care to admit. Um, so I was, well, maybe professional musician isn't the right phrase. Struggling musician would be That's more fine. accurate. Aspiring, let's call it that. Um, so I was living in London, um, trying to make ends meet, kind of. But it was all very chaotic financially for me. I was quite a young guy and not managing things very well, not doing adult things very well. So like, I'd have a good month, I'd overspend. Um, I'd have a bad month and suddenly the sky was falling. Um, so it was all very insecure, I would say. And then I had some stuff happen in my personal life, which meant that my living situation was a bit disrupted. Um, and that coincided with my work drying up a little bit. Long story short, I needed to take a loan out to cover some rent. Not a good idea. Um, and then my work really started drying up and I took out another loan to cover the next month's rent. That all started snowballing and suddenly I couldn't really keep up with the payments. And I actually ended up sleeping in a warehouse that my friend owned, um, sleeping on an airbed. And I was doing that for about six months. Um, I guess the big problem I had with that was I was too embarrassed to tell my friends about it. I didn't want to worry my family. So just kind of white knuckling my way through that situation. And kind of that was my, my low point. Um, what happened next was, well, I decided I need to get like a steady gig. I need a nine to five. And I actually really want to learn more about financial management because I don't want to get into this situation again. 
So I got a job at a bank. I started quite literally in the post room. And then fast forward 10 years, I'm looking after about a billion pounds worth of private client money, which means I'm looking after the personal finances of some of the wealthiest people in society. Um, so I guess all the way from a complete financial screw up down on their luck to a trusted financial expert. Uh, but when I got to that position, it was like, well, that's great. I'm really comfortable. Um, and the problem was there's still an awful lot of people who aren't comfortable, like 25 year old me really needs some help. And I decided, well, these people I'm looking after right now, um, they're going to be fine whether I'm there or not, to be quite frank. Yeah. Maybe some would argue they'd be better off if I wasn't there. And so I started trying to find ways in which we could help more people with their finances. So I joined an organization called the Finance Innovation Lab, an organization that was set up to build better financial services for people and for the planet. And the idea for Bipit came out of that. And Bipit now exists to give everyone someone to talk to about money. So no matter what your situation is, no matter what your background is, no matter what your bank balance is, you should be able to talk to an expert to deal with your concerns and get a helping hand to achieve all of your hopes and dreams. So that's why we exist. Yeah, no, I love that. It's, it's such a powerful story. And I think the main thing I take away from that is like hope, like it doesn't matter who you are and what situation you're in, there's always a way to turn it around. Um, even if you don't know anything about finances at that point in time, like there's always a way to find out stuff and, and get out of that situation. Um, before we talk about Bipit, I just actually want to chat to you a bit more broadly about like financial education, education and well-being. Um, and I just wondered if, if I asked you to rate or describe like the average person's financial education or knowledge in the UK today, like how would, what would you say? Pretty weak, I would say. It's not non-existent, but it very much depends on your family circumstances. One of the big problems that we have is we just don't learn about this stuff in school. So if you're not learning about it from your parents, from your family, you're ultimately quite clueless with this stuff. And look, we've had Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, say quite recently that um, he wants children to be learning mathematics all the way up to the age of 18. Well, that's great. I did that. I learned mathematics, did mechanics, statistics, pure maths, all the way up to the age of 18. I came out of school knowing how to solve differential equations, but I didn't know how a mortgage worked. <laughs> I didn't even understand income tax. Pensions were a complete mystery to me. So what we're really missing in the curriculum is that fundamental personal finance education. Hopefully that's something that will come through in the future. But in the meantime, there are an awful lot of people who go into their adult life, either through university or straight into the workforce. They don't know how to manage their money. They don't know how to budget. They don't know how to save. And those things are really, really dangerous, especially in the society we live in at the moment where there are all kinds of financial products and things that we can get involved in, which can be quite risky and quite detrimental to our financial health. Yeah, that definitely resonates with me. Like I'd say I I'd studied maths as well until I was 18. And um, I think people would probably say that I was academically smart, but I couldn't tell you what a mortgage was. I couldn't tell you uh, what an ISA is and all these terms and stuff. And you come out and, and like you said, you, you just kind of rely on your parents and do whatever they do, which 
obviously they may not have had much much training or, or knowledge either um and, and and i guess what's what's like the knock-on impact to this like what are some of the common situations people then find themselves in later life financially when they don't know about these things and make some wrong decisions like, are there common themes that you see in terms of like the problems people fall into yeah there are so many things one of the really common things is especially if someone's gone to university and they've had student loans, they've got overdrafts, and banks are very happy to give students an overdraft that's interest-free. But when you come out of university, often there's interest on that, and you're loaded up with debt. You might have even taken out a credit card. So what we tend to see is an awful lot of people entering the workforce, whether they've been through university or not, and they're loaded up with debt. That could be an overdraft, it could be a credit card, or it could be because they've made unsustainable purchases We have this thing now, buy now, pay later, BNPL schemes, Klarna and the likes, where you can be buying stuff and loading yourself up with debts, thinking that, okay, I can just kick the can down the road and everything's going to be fine. But actually, this leads to really significant problems. So there's an awful lot of people just just not managing their monthly cash flow very well. And I guess it's, it's very easy to fall into this trap of, trying to live an unsustainable lifestyle because everything we see on social media is so aspirational. Everything that we're um, faced with when it comes to advertising is so aspirational. You know, we see people on social media standing in front of a supercar, standing in front of a yacht on these amazing holidays, doing all of these interesting things that cost a lot of money. And of course, we want to do all of those things as well. We want an exciting life. We want an affluent life. But the truth is, for the vast majority of us, that is completely out of reach. So we need to be realistic about it. So that is a very common theme. But what we also see is problems that span all the way through someone's career, all the way through someone's lifetime. So debt and money management is a big problem for early careers people. But then we have people who are getting to the age where they're experiencing different life events, trying to get on the property ladder, something a lot of people are very frustrated about. Thinking about starting a family, something that people are very unsure about and unaware whether they can afford it or not, because, of course, childcare costs are so high. And then we actually have people towards the end of their career, they might have assets, they might have some kind of wealth, but they've got so many financial responsibilities. It can be very, very stressful. And then, of course, we've got the problem of retirement. The vast majority of people in the UK are completely underfunded for their retirement. So we've got a lot of people who are going almost blindly through their career, not realizing that actually their standard of living is going to drop off the edge of a cliff when it comes to their later life, especially if they have nursing fees and other things to pay for. So I know that's quite a lot of hot air for me, but there are problems across the board, unfortunately. And there are ways that we can tackle this, but there's an awful lot of work to be done. And for people wherever they are on that life journey and, and whichever problem they may, they may find themselves in, what are the current options available to people to go and get support? Because, you know, if, if you're not feeling very well, you go to a GP. But, like, if you have financial problems, who do you go to? Because, like, the pessimist in me thinks I wouldn't want to go to my bank because they're probably just going to try and sell me some other product that won't really help my situation. Do, are there places you can go, Sam, at the moment to, to get, like, free advice or try and, you know, if you are in a tough spot, they can help you get out of that? There are places, yeah, but you make a very good point about, well, a lot of people will think, well, my bank, the place that's looking after all of my money, that's going to help me, surely. But you walk into a high street bank and 
they're potentially going to sell you something that isn't appropriate for you because it's in their own interest. The important thing is trying to find that impartial, independent support. And that can be um, a little bit harder than you might imagine, because even if you're searching for things online, you use the analogy of, you know, going to see your GP. If something's wrong with us, what's the first thing we do? We we search for the symptoms online and get a lot of scary stuff come back quite often. But the problem is if you're searching for solutions for your financial situation online, you're going to have a whole load of businesses that have some kind of model that is leading you to a particular product or a particular solution, something that you might have to pay for. Trying to find that independent, impartial support is very, very hard. We have organizations that are set up, um, the Money and Pension Service from the government, um, Citizens Advice Bureau. There are companies that can help with problem debt, like step change. There are solutions out there, but they are few and far between, unfortunately. So there's a really big opportunity for us to provide trusted, impartial support in some way, shape or form to the vast majority of people in the country. And I guess the way that we try to do that at BIPIT is we go through the workforce. So we provide it as an employee benefit. So if you're in the workforce and your company signs up to BIPIT, you're going to be able to get that impartial expert support. Something that isn't really available to the vast majority of us, unless you're very, very wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. It makes complete sense. And, um, I guess like identifying some pretty big gaps here in society in terms of like lack of education around it, lack of support in later life. Like it seems like a really tough thing for people um, to get out of if, if they do find themselves in that situation. In terms of looking broadly at what needs to change, like we've talked about better education system around like financial financial knowledge. Do you see like there needs to be better regulations around like how products and services are sold to people or is it... Um, you know, better options for people outside of like the employer option you just mentioned, better publicly available routes for people to go and get help? Like what needs to change to help shift people to a better state of like financial resilience and and health? I think the regulation is a really interesting point, actually. You know, a lot of people hear regulation, they think red tape, they think negative things, but actually it can be really beneficial. And let's use the example of cryptocurrency, for instance. Um, an area of financial services, let's call it, that's completely unregulated at the moment. And I don't know if you've seen the sort of things I've seen, but I've been on social media and I see someone trying to sell me a trading strategy. They're standing in front of a Lamborghini and saying, hey, look, follow (laughs) me, sign up to my course and you can have this life. And of course, that's complete nonsense. But there are a lot of young, impressionable people who buy into that because they want that get-rich-quick scheme. The truth is, though, there aren't really any get-rich quick schemes. Um, we have a saying a bit, it's all about getting rich slow. You know, get rich, but do it slow and steady and safely. Um, and we can all achieve that by doing the right things. What I think is really important um, is that whatever um, financial services you're interacting with, there is a wraparound of education. That is absolutely crucial because financial services aren't inherently good or bad. I mean, let's take a credit card, for instance. Credit card isn't inherently good or bad. If you use it in the right way, it can improve your credit score. It can give you cash back. It can give you air miles, all kinds of perks. But if you use it in the wrong way, then it's going to cost you a hell of a lot of money because those interest rates are really, really high. So there's always individual responsibility there. What I think is the responsibility of financial services in general is whatever product you're providing, whatever service you're providing, 
you need to wrap that around with education so people understand what they're getting into. They understand the risks. They understand the benefits. Definitely. And, and coming back to your point about the employer, um, obviously, that's a great way to um, hit a huge demographic of society that need help with their with their finances. And I feel like it's the way a lot of things are going in the market at the moment with the war for talent and employers trying to stand out. It's a great way to differentiate yourself and offer true support to employees and something they really do need. It's a way to stand out. Um, why else is it in the interest of the employer to offer like financial wellbeing support to employees? Well, it's a good point about the whole sort of employer branding thing. There's always going to be a war for talent. So having a benefits package that makes you stand out is going to be great for attracting the very best people. And what's the best indicator of success for a business? It's the quality of people that you're hiring. There are so many other benefits and there's, there's so much research coming through now, which is really encouraging. Um, for instance, um, people who are financially stressed are more than twice as likely to look for another job. So there's a huge retention piece there. If you can deal with financial stress in the workplace, you've got a benefit in terms of retention, got a benefit in terms of productivity, got a benefit in terms of um, presenteeism and absenteeism levels. There are whole kinds of other things. But there's even more granular stuff than that. So the service that we provide at BIPIT going through the workplace, 70% of people that have interacted with one of the professional coaches that we provide have said they intend to increase their pension contributions. Now, that is fantastic for the individual to that whole pension funding issue that we were mentioning earlier. But it's also really beneficial to the business because it can reduce the amount of tax that you're paying if that individual is contributing to their pension through salary sacrifice. So there's a whole bunch of knock-on effects. So it's not just like a nice to have these days. It's almost like a business strategy in and of itself if you want to run a healthy company. And like, let's not forget that as a business owner, you're already involved in the financial well-being of all of your employees because, of course, you're their source of income. Yeah. You're their source of retirement. You might even be their source of insurance and protection with life insurance and critical illness cover and all kinds of other things. So you're already involved in this stuff. But if you're able to go a step further, kind of go beyond the paycheck, if you will, there are a whole bunch of extra benefits that you can glean from that. And that, for some reason, just triggered um, something in my mind, which I think I can't remember what the source was, but I think I read that the employer is one of the most like trusted sources for a person. Um, when they rank all different places you can get information from. So I think to that point as well, and your point about education, like it's a great point for an employer to take on that responsibility and actually help educate their employees on, yeah, you, yeah we're your source of income, but also here's the, like, the best way to manage that money to achieve the goals and things you want to do in your life, knowing that they're one of the best like trusted sources that that information could come from. Um, so look, we talked loads about the kind of general space, which I really appreciate. I've learned loads um, and I could keep going, but we better talk about BIPIT. And I know you've, you've kind of mentioned it a couple of times, Sam, there. But um, to give, just give like a, an overview of BIPIT and what you do, could you, could you run through it, please? Yeah, we, we have touched upon it, I guess, um, in, in a little way. But you know, BIPIT is an employee benefit. We um, provide that to businesses and we help all of the individuals within that company with their financial life, so their personal finances, their workplace finances. And it's something that is for everyone. So all the way from graduate trainee to CEO, we're there to help people manage their finances. 
What's really, really important with that is the understanding that everyone is different. Everyone has a unique financial situation. Everyone has a unique relationship with money. So one size fits all just doesn't work. That's why we give every single person within an organization a professional coach to have conversations with. So this is someone who has professional level qualifications recognized by the FCA, the Financial Services Regulator, someone who has trained for years, practiced in some cases for decades, helping people with their financial life. And we give that to every single person within the organization in a safe, private, confidential space. Because look, there's no getting around it. Our financial life is a very sensitive place. In many ways, it's the last taboo. Like we've made really good strides in recent years in terms of mental health, especially the services that are provided through the workplace. But there's still a lot to be done with financial well-being. We're more likely to talk about our mental health or our sex life or death than we are about money. So it's this big elephant in the room. It's affecting everyone all of the time, but no one's talking about it. And that's what we're trying to do ultimately is normalize that conversation and give everyone a safe private space where they can have these conversations about money. Nice. And, and to, I guess to dig into how that works um, in a more granular detail, like if, if I signed uh, my business up today and my employees had access to BIPIT, what, what does that user journey look like for them? Like the first interaction, is that kind of like a, you know, establishing a baseline? What's that current kind of financial health of that person? What are their goals? How does it work beyond that point in terms of putting a plan in place, tracking against that plan? Yeah, good question. So um, what's really good is you can get started immediately. So there's no integrations needed with the business, instant setup ultimately. And then as an individual, an employee at that business, you can get registered in less than two minutes. So we ask you a few questions about your situation, about your life, how you feel about money, what you want to achieve. And then what we're going to do is we're going to match you with your own dedicated expert, someone that's tailored to your needs, to things you want to achieve, has specialisms in the things you want to talk about. And then you're introduced to that coach. And the best way to get started is to just jump on a call with them. We do everything through video calls, or you can send them a message if you like. Instead, you've got access to unlimited messaging. So you can start interacting with someone, ask those burning questions, deal with those concerns, start making plans towards achieving all of your hopes and dreams. But then what we've done is we've wrapped around a huge amount of software because we know everyone is different. Not everyone is going to want to have a conversation with their coach straight away. Um, you might want to analyze your spending. So you can connect up your accounts to the platform and we'll analyze that for you automatically, help you put together a budget. You might want to start tracking your goals because you've already got a clear idea about what you want to do. Well, you can set those up on the platform and track them automatically. You might want to just research a particular area of finances. So we've got a library of resources that are created by experts and it's all independent, it's all verified. Or you might want to just get a sense of how do I stack up right now? Like what is my financial health? So you can take a health check and get like a financial MOT, see where you're strong, see where you need to pay a bit more attention and then we'll guide you to improve these things. So there's lots and lots of different entry points. Because that's really important. Some people are introverts. Some people are extroverts. Some people know what they're doing. Some people haven't got a clue. We've got to cater for everyone. There's no one size fits all. So we've got to make sure those entry points are varied and all of them are effective. 
Got it. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and in terms of like the continued tracking against the goal, is that is that more done through the platform and the software? Is that is that, is there like regular touch points with that financial coach? Is it really driven by the individual to take responsibility for for what they're trying to achieve? It's shared responsibility, um, as it should be, really. Um, It's not going to work if you just have someone telling you what to do all of the time. You need a guide. You need a coach, someone who can validate your decisions for you, someone who can keep you accountable. But you still have to take responsibility as an individual if you want to achieve these things. So let's say you want to, I don't know, get on the property ladder, for instance. You've been frustrated about it and you see other people, your peers getting on the property ladder and it's something you want to do. Come into the platform. Have a conversation with your coach, talk about it. And then your coach will guide you to a particular article to read, help you set up that goal, help you open a savings account if you like, and then you can start building up your deposit. And then you can have regular check-ins with your coach, see how you're progressing with things, see if you're falling behind, see if you're getting ahead. All of that is available to you as an individual to see on the platform. So then, okay, if you've fallen behind a little bit, you can always check in with your coach, have a conversation about things. How do I catch up with this? How can I budget better? How can I find more capacity next month to get back on track? These things are already available. And then as you go through that journey, you're learning things. You're learning about interest rates and inflation. You're learning about mortgage brokers. You're learning how to navigate the property market so that when you've built up that deposit, for instance, you're armed with all the information you need to make an informed decision about taking that action, going out and getting that mortgage. So that's what we're there for, really, help people understand how things work, help them understand their options, get them organized, get them making progress, and then get them ready to take action to improve things. And, and, and the, the, obviously, the, the coaches are like key to the user experience here. Um, my couple of questions are, um, you mentioned, you know, you, there's like people that have qualified, lots of experience. What else do you look for for them to make it to become like, you know, BIPIT financial coaches? And and secondly, how does the matching process work? Like, would you pair up someone like if, if they're, you know, uh, this is their first job, they've come out of uni with, with student debt, you'd match someone who's an expert in kind of student debt and that kind of stuff? Or is it a slightly different way that you match? Good questions. Um, so in terms of the matching, what we're trying to do there is make sure You've got someone that fits your needs. But what we found in our user testing very clearly is that people typically like to have someone who's just a little bit older than them. It doesn't really work if you've got a, um, a graduate trainee talking to a 60-year-old financial advisor because there's kind of that sort of conceptual gap there. But you want someone who is a little bit older and has the right level of experience. But then also that person needs to have specialisms in the things you want to achieve. So as you come through that registration that I described earlier, you're letting us know what's on your mind right now. Do you want to get on the property ladder? Um, do you want to be building better habits? Um, are you feeling a bit anxious about your retirement fund? Do you want to understand more about it and get organized? Um, do you have some debt that you want to pay off? Whatever it is that's on your mind right now, we'll take that information. We'll match it with the specialisms of our coaches, make sure they're in the right sort of age range for you. And then we'll pair you together. And we've got a really good success rate for that. It's above 99%. Um, Often people want to change a coach purely because the availability of the coach doesn't necessarily match up with the specific availability that they need. Like they need someone who's available on a Sunday night or something. So, you know, sometimes we have to make that change. But 
aside from that, we're doing a really good job of making sure people are speaking to someone who they can get a lot of value out of and that they trust. And then when it comes to that coach, you asked, well, what do they need to look like to be a BIPIC coach? Well, they need to be one of the best qualified people in the market, ultimately. So we've got a very high baseline in terms of qualifications, and that's the first filter. And then we go through a very strict vetting process. Um, we do um, written tests with them to see how they communicate via message. We do tech tests with them to make sure they can navigate all of our new technology really effectively. Are they tech savvy, ultimately? And then we do mock calls. So myself and other members of the team um, come onto calls and we, we pretend to be someone who is, um, you know, using the platform for the first time. And we test that coach to make sure that they've got those soft skills. They've got those interpersonal skills. Because, look, you could be the most qualified person in the world, but you don't have that bedside manner that's really necessary to get people to be comfortable with you and engage with their finances. And once we've ticked those things off, we then bring people into the platform. We monitor them very carefully. We make sure they're always doing the right things in the right way at the right time for the users of the platform. And then, you know, they can carry on helping people. And I think what's really interesting is that the experience that we've created is very, very effective for the users, but the experience also has to be great for those experts that we have on the platform. Um, the good news is financial advice, the industry itself, pretty much sucks. So if you're a financial advisor, you're going to be spending potentially about half of your time prospecting, trying to find new clients. You might spend 20, 30% of your time doing admin, potentially with horrendous technology. And I say that from experience. So the actual amount of time that you spend as a traditional financial advisor helping people is very, very small. And the experience with BIPIT is completely the opposite. You get to spend 100% of your time doing the thing you've trained to do and hopefully the thing you love to do, which is help people. And so creating that, that sort of duality, those two great experiences, really, really important. It's got to work for the experts on the platform. And of course, it's got to work for the users we support. A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, the good news is you can. Go and visit www.jobsforgood.io, where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company and position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. So it reminds me, I had a conversation with the founder of Aliva Health and um, similar, like it's an employee wellbeing uh, benefits provider, but they focus on mental health support. Um, and there were a lot of challenges around the therapists and what they have to deal with, um, setting up businesses, trying to find business, uh, a lot of headaches, stuff they don't want to be doing. Like you just said, you know, actually these people just want to just focus on their work and what they do really well and not have to worry about prospecting or the admin or um, yeah, any of that stuff. So that's that's cool um you, you talked about user testing for a moment and i always find this this question interesting um because i find like no matter who you are you always make assumptions about your product how it's going to be used what people want from it over the last years as you've been doing different tests and, and user research what have been some of the most surprising things you've come across where you're like no i was sure it was going to be used in that way or people would want that and actually you know the validations <laughs> showed you something completely different 
user testing is is fascinating. The whole user research piece is, is so cool. And I always come back to the thought that there are no answers in the room. You can have all of these assumptions, you can have all of these conversations as a team, but until you start talking to users, until you start putting things into people's hands, you really don't know. Um, and like going all the way back to the very early days of BIPIP, um, one of the things we did, first of all, myself and my co-founders, we um, sat in a Pret-a-Manger in Covent Garden in London at a big um, trestle table um, that, that seated about 10 people. And we sat there every day for about two weeks and we spoke to everyone who sat down, whether they liked it or not. Um, we asked them about their financial life and we learned so many things. The first really key insight is that very few people are willing to trust an automated solution for their financial life. Because we thought in the early days, oh, we can make this like crazy scalable and we can have like a chatbot that answers everyone's questions. But the truth is our financial lives are so nuanced and so complicated. And we have so many emotions that are wrapped up around money. Very few people are willing to trust a fully automated solution. You have to have that human in the loop. You have to have that trusted professional expert and focus on the professional. Like you've got to have someone who knows what they're doing. They can't have just gone on a six week course. They need to have studied this stuff for years. They need to be that source of truth. That way people can get things done. I guess linked to that, the other really interesting insight that we had, which we weren't expecting, is that most people kind of know what they should be doing. <laughs> the problem is they have decision paralysis about it. And actually, what the vast majority of people need is a conversation with that expert to validate what they already know. A lot of us know we should be saving more. A lot of us know that we probably should start investing at some point, or we need to add more to our pension, or we should try and get on the property ladder whatever it is for our financial life, we kind of know broadly what we should be doing, but we haven't had anyone spell it out to us. We haven't had anyone validate those decisions. So that was really, really interesting. Um, and I guess the, the, the final thing that we learned, which, which was surprising in the very, very early days, was when we were thinking about the whole business model. Um, we had ideas about, well, we could go through the workplace, we could try and do this B2C, so do it directly to people. So one of the things we did actually is we went up to um, a number of universities um, for sort of freshers weeks to speak to thousands of people in one hit because we were thinking, well, okay, let's get to people at the earliest possible stage before those bad habits start. Let's see if there's a business model there. So we're talking to loads and loads of people. Interestingly, with students, it was, well, um, about half of them weren't really thinking about money because mum and dad were picking up the tab and they didn't have to worry about anything. And, and the other half were really stressed about it and already budgeting very carefully or getting into debt. But what we really found there was hardly anyone had any experience of talking to an expert. And the stats back that up. Like nine out of 10 people have never spoken to an expert in their entire financial life. And so the challenge there for a B2C business model is if People don't have that experience. They don't know the value of that service. If they don't know the value, they're going to be very unlikely to put their hand in their own pocket and pay for it. And so that allowed us to build a lot of certainty around the B2B business model. Go through the workplace. Let's get the business to cover the cost. And that way, it can be free at the point of use to everyone. So no matter what your situation, you can engage with an expert rather than having to make a commitment, oh, I'm going to spend $5.99 a month 
to pay for this thing. Well, actually, what we're finding is an awful lot of people are coming in, even just for the novelty of being able to speak to someone, and then they're engaging with their financial life for the first time. They're achieving all of their hopes and dreams, which is something that is incredibly exciting for us. And I guess really good vindication of going down that route and choosing that business model. Definitely. And uh, my next question was about the B2B2C model, because it's, it's a tough one in the sense that you're, you're building something for a user, which is in this case, the employee. It's being paid for by someone else, which is the employer. Um, so in terms of, and, and you mentioned that like those sessions are anonymized. What, what data reporting can you and do you feed back to the employer from a point of view of like communicating like return investment? Because I, I assume though that's really important as employees may have this great experience, but if it's not being communicated in certain ways to the employer, that when it comes to like renewal time, it can be a more challenging conversation. So yeah, what, what data can you and do you share with the employer? Absolutely. Um, and look, I think you, you hit on a really interesting point there that like, this product is for the employee and the employer. And you've got to make sure from a product perspective, you've got that alignment right. The good news is with financial well-being is there is an awful lot of alignment there. Look, if we are helping the individual with their financial life, that is going to cascade into benefits for the business. And we touched upon some of those things earlier. And those are the sort of stats we try to play back. But I think for any business launching a new initiative, what's the first thing that they need to ensure? Well, they need to ensure people are going to use it. And that's why registration rate is so important. The good news is with what we do is on average, and we work with businesses of all sizes, all the way up to tens of thousands of people. Good news is like the average registration rate is above 50%. So you're getting half of your organization at least to engage with this new benefit that you've rolled out. That's 10x what you would get from most things in the employee benefit space. So, and I think the reason for that is, is there is a, an unquenchable thirst for this from the employees to the point we made just a moment ago. Hardly any of them have had this experience before, and they need that experience. They need that help. But then what we try to do is we try to bring all of the quantitative and the qualitative stuff into the employer. So it's not just about how many people have registered, how many people are using it, how many people have interacted with the coach, how many people are um, using the health check, how many people are coming back. Of course, that data is really important. You want to see that it's used, but you also need to see the impact. So what's really important is that we're able to demonstrate, have employees improved their confidence with their financial life? Have they improved their organization with their financial life? Have they improved their knowledge? These kind of pillars are really, really important. And crucially, have people reduced their debt? Have they increased their savings? Do they feel more financially secure? This stuff is really, really important because then we're showing, well, this is actually effective. Now, it becomes a little bit harder when you're trying to um, evidence the improvement with retention or increase in speed of hiring, all the things that are happening within this platform. But a lot of that is reliant on the data the organization has itself. We can't necessarily prove that without the data from the organization. So thankfully, with a lot of the companies that we support, they do have that really data-driven process where they are keeping a track of retention rates. They are keeping a track of you know, um, speed of recruitment. They are keeping track of productivity and absenteeism and presenteeism. And therefore, over a span of time, you're able to see that going in the right direction if you're dealing with financial stress in the workplace. So that there's a whole bunch of layers there. You know, what we've got right at the top is, are people using this? Number two, 
Is it having an impact on the individual? And then number three, is it having an impact on your business? Thanks to whole sense. And um, final question about Bipit is, um, you know, looking forwards now, what, what are some of the big things you've got planned in the next year or two that you're you're excited about? Oh, I don't know if I can give away all of our product roadmap, but I can give you some, <laughs> <laughs> some ideas about what's coming. Um, I mean, we're learning so much on a daily basis from all of our users, and it's very, very exciting. What we're finding is that people want to um, connect more and more of their financial life so they can see everything in one place. So one thing that I guess we're we're kind of blocked by at the moment is how fast regulation moves. So we use technology in the platform called Open Banking, which if anyone listening hasn't heard of it before, it's a government mandated scheme, which has basically made all of your data available to you as an individual. And you might have seen it in your high street bank, like Barclays and HSBC. You can now connect things from different places. So you've got credit cards with other providers, current accounts with other providers, you can connect them all up to high street bank accounts and you can do the same at Bippin. But what we're finding is more and more people want to connect investment accounts, mortgages, pension accounts. And unfortunately, a lot of those connections don't exist right now. So we're working very, very hard to build out that bandwidth ultimately so people can connect more of their financial life. But we're blocked by those providers themselves because if they don't make secure APIs available, there's no way to do that. So people have to update things manually, which no works, but isn't necessarily your best experience. What's also super, super interesting is that what we found with a lot of people is they're managing their finances as a household. So it's not just the individual that's important. It's their household finances. It's their family finances. So being able to provide plus one accounts, being able to create secondary profiles. So for instance, your, your spouse or your partner or maybe your parent can create an account with Bipit and then you can be managing things together in a secure way. That's really, really challenging, a really heavy lift, fiendishly complex. But if we can build a system that really works for that and is effective, it's fantastic because we're going to be able to help more people more effectively, whether it be on an individual level or as a family level. So that's something we're really excited about. But as I say, it's a very big piece of work. And um, if we can achieve that, then that's going to be a game changer, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, was, I thought about that earlier. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of families, couples, um, yeah, will have separate accounts for staff. They'll have shared accounts for some staff. They have shared goals, individual goals. So, yeah, I think if you nail that, that, <laughs> that that's what make the product super, super sticky. It's really complicated, though, because you've got money flying around from different accounts, different places. You might be doing it, you know, in a sort of unregimented way at different times during the month. Like the complexity is really, really yeah. high. But, you know, the, the opportunity is there with technology to solve that problem for people and make it easier to manage ultimately. Absolutely. And Sam, I guess I want to come back to to you for a moment and like your journey and, and you were good enough to share like your 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 um, journey earlier with like finances. And I guess like what I took away from that plus the research is you're someone who's faced a lot of adversity. Um, you know, I have friends that have tried to be musicians. It's a brutal life choice, um, always auditioning, lots of competition, constant rejection. Uh, get a gig and you think you're on the way up and then you have like a quiet month it's, it's really hard to go through that as a person and then you you like you mentioned you, you worked into a different career which was much more solid 
Uh, and now you're back to you know running a startup, which again is probably one of the toughest career choices someone <laughs> someone could make. Where does that drive and like mental resilience come from? It's a good question, and I kind of to take it back to the the, the music days. It's a very hard life being self-employed, or at least I found it very hard. Um, you need to be very organized. You need to be very mature. And unfortunately, I was neither of those things <laughs> in my life. Um, argument could be made that I'm neither of those things now, but um, you need to ask my partner about that. Um, <laughs> but what I think is, is really important um, for everyone is, is to know yourself. Like, what is it that is a good environment for you? It's kind of a vocational thing. Because I think to myself, well, look, if money were no object, how would I spend my time? And actually, what I like doing is building things. And I like working with people. So I wouldn't be someone who is just, you know, you know, um, hiding myself away, doing something like, you know, very deep, very creative, maybe. I'm someone who likes that sort of interaction. I like to be working with people. I'm also quite an anxious soul, which manifests itself with me in needing control. And so it's actually a really good situation for me um, being the head of a business because I have end-to-end control with some things. And, of course, I need to give that up and delegate and things, but, you know, it's ultimately something I have control over. And that helps because, as I say, I'm quite an anxious person. So I think you've got to take it back to, like, like understand who you are and then try to find a career that works for you. You know, the, the drive and the the sort of dedication I have to what we're doing right now, I don't think would be the same if I was building a different business. You know, I heard this a while ago, you know, find what you love and let it kill you. Um, so what, <laughs> what I really love and what I want to achieve and what I want to do for society is help people with their financial life, help 25-year-old Sam, you know, because I've had that experience and I know how difficult it can be. And so that's where the drive comes from. Every day I wake up and I'm like, We've got so much more work to do, but what we're doing is really important. So you've got to have that if you are going to be entrepreneurial with your pursuits, because it's going to be really hard. There are going to be days where you wonder, what the hell am I doing? Why am I working so hard and nothing is happening and nothing is going the right way? And unless it is something that like really, really deep down fires you up and you're obsessed by you're going to lose that motivation. You're going to lose that discipline. You're going to give up ultimately because no matter what you're building, at some point it's going to be really hard. So make sure it's something that you really care about. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point and advice. Like I have the privilege of chatting to lots of founders um, and, and that's the key thing I take away from all these conversations is that a lot of them wouldn't choose to be entrepreneurs. They wouldn't even call themselves entrepreneurs or look to found a business but what they do have is like an unrelent like a relentless drive to solve a certain problem because of something they've experienced a family member's experience something they've seen in society and that that like relentless desire to solve that problem overcomes all of those other things all of the other obstacles that would stop them doing that in a in a different situation so um I guess final section, which I wanted to spend a decent amount of time chatting to you about, Sam, was was like you know going about building a tech for good, an impact business um, with employee well being at its core. So, first of all, I just want to get your insights about like how do you think about employee well being? Like, what are the factors uh, that contribute to good employee well being within a company? 
A lot of people think about three core pillars. Some think about five, some think about seven. It's tough, right? You can over-engineer this. Take it back to really simple principles. Think of the business as a product. And it's a product that you're building for the people you employ. And so you've got to be improving that every day. It's got to delight them. It's got to engage them. And it's got to get them doing their best work. And if you have that kind of mindset, you won't go far wrong. And a big part of that is the, the well-being piece, of course. You know? You've got to give people the right environment so they can thrive. And there are lots of really granular things, lots of different strategies that you can undertake to achieve that. But you've got to have that always come from the top down. Like the old adage, culture comes from the top. It's true. You know, one of the things that we're really proud of is that we do have that cascading down. And if there are toxic things towards the top of your business, you've got to weed those out because those are going to be problematic. For instance, you could have, for instance, a, um, an unlimited annual leave policy. But if there is like a toxic presence culture coming from the top where the, the senior leadership team are expecting you to be online all of the time at like 8 p.m., then that's just not going to work. So culture comes from the top. You've got to get that right. And as long as you're thinking about the business as a product, trying to create something that delights um, all of your employees on a daily basis, you'll probably be on the right track. I like that. Um, and Bipit have been doing, I think, a fair amount of hiring uh, over the last six, 12 months. Um, what's, yeah, what, what, when, when it comes to hiring, what do you think are some of the things that Bipit do really well that's helped you attract great people into the business? Well, one of the things that we introduced quite recently is we've um, been tracking a, an NPS score, a net promoter score, um, for all candidates, not just people we hire, but the candidates, even if they don't get past the first um, filtering. Um, we try to give them feedback, and then we track their NPS, so we send out a survey to them. I think our NPS is above 60 now, and considering you're giving the vast majority of people um, bad news. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a pretty good um, starting point. And, and that's been very, very useful for us, I think, because people talk. And if you're going to hire the best people, you've got to make sure that end-to-end -end you're creating good experience. And that starts from the first interaction they have with you, goes all the way through the recruitment process. It goes into the onboarding. It goes into their experience as an employee. So I think that's something that we've done really well is get data-driven with how we're doing that recruitment. Um, and then ask good quality questions. Don't think that a member of the team can just turn up to an interview, have a chat for half an hour, and they can give a decent review of what that person is like at that stage in the interview process. You need to come very well prepared with very good questions. And you've got to make sure those questions aren't leading. And what I mean by that, there's a great book called The Mom Test. Um, which is all about sort of user research. But I think the same is true when you're interviewing. It can be very easy to ask a question and kind of give half of the answer in your question. <laughs> so you kind of got to bite your tongue and hold your breath and let that person respond to something that's very open-ended. And then you, you get their true feelings about things rather than you end up leading the witness otherwise. And so if you stitch that together, try to create a great experience Try to be prepared and ask good quality questions. 
And then finally, I guess, trust your gut at the end of the day, because you might have two candidates who have interviewed incredibly well, their experience, their references all stack up incredibly well. But you're going to have to work with that person day in, day out. Right? Trust your gut. Who is the person that you think you can get on the best with and have the best results with? And I think if you have those three things in place, you can't go too far wrong. Yeah, no, I think those are great points. And I'm the number one candidate experience, looking at it from the other way, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's between 70-80%. If they have a negative experience to your company, they won't reply again. They'll tell someone else about that experience and they may not even uh they won't even buy your product or service in future. Like it can be quite a damning consequence um if you don't invest in like a good candidate experience. And like you said, the majority of people that will haven't experienced your brand that just they're gonna have to be like people that have they don't they don't get the job. It's just the way that the numbers will work. Only one person can get that job. So actually thinking about how you interact and engage with all those people is, is super key. And I think a lot of businesses fall short on that that part and they just focus on the ones that do get into the interview process and get the job. Um, so it was super, super interesting. Um, last question I had was just about your employee benefits package, which I should have posted about LinkedIn uh, a few weeks back because I was so impressed. At, you know, early stage startups, it can be difficult sometimes to invest the, the money and time into like a decent benefits package. But I do think you you reap the rewards. And I could see from from uh, what Bipit had put together that it had a lot of time and effort gone into that. And I just wonder if you could explain a bit more about like the thought process and the principles that went into like how that benefits package has been put together. Yeah, look, I mean, I guess it's quite simple in many ways. Um, we talk the talk, so we've got to walk the walk when it comes <laughs> to well-being. Um, but, you know, it would be it would be kind of crazy if we were so passionate about the impact of well-being in the financial pillar, but we weren't looking after our people in terms of their well-being. And we do a whole host of different things, but it's always consultative. We're always asking the team, what do they need? How can we improve your experience, improve your environment, improve your levels of stress. Um, and then we try to fold that into things that, of course, we can afford, but things that are actually going to have an impact. And then we measure it to make sure that it's useful for people. Um, we are a remote-first company as well. And I think what's really interesting about that is there are operational superpowers and efficiencies that come with it. But you have to be very intentional about culture. And so you have to make time for interpersonal stuff because otherwise all of your interactions with other members of the team end up being very transactional. It's all business, 100% business. And so we have to be very intentional about making spaces to decompress together, have fun together, play games together. Today, actually, funnily enough, um, we've got um, our first ever sports day in Regent's Park, which nice. I can't attend because I'm not in the UK at the moment, but um, I'm really looking forward to the pictures, certainly. <laughs> and I'm going to put some money on the egg and spoon race. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where as long as you're going through that recruitment process well enough and you're getting really good people in, people who are not necessarily a culture fit, but a culture add, mm -hmm. then engage with those people find out what they need, find out where they're struggling, find out how we can improve things, and you'll be led down the right path. So, you know, we do things like there are group volunteering schemes, we have learning and development, we have mental health support, we have financial coaching, of course, um, but then a whole host of other 
I guess, softer things. So on a monthly basis, we have someone external come in and give us a talk. We had someone talk about um, the refugee situation a couple of weeks ago. We had someone come in and talk about women's health. Lots and lots of different things to make sure that in a remote business, you're not just being completely transactional about things. You're giving the business an opportunity to breathe because you, I guess you miss out a little bit on those serendipitous things where, okay, I'm going to make a cup of tea and just have like, a 10 minute chat with a random member of the team because they're in the kitchen and that's what we're doing. So we've been very intentional about it, but it's always under review. Got to make sure that what we're doing is effective and it's creating a good environment for everyone. Nice. Well, Sam, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Like I could keep asking you questions all day. <laughs> I've learned loads, um, but I'll, I'll have to stop it there. Um, for anyone wanting to find out more about Bipit or follow you, like where are you most active on socials as a company? Yeah, LinkedIn is the place to find us. So Bipit, B-I-P-P-I-T, or um, direct to myself, Samuel Lathy, L-A-T-H-E-Y. Um, yeah, check us out on LinkedIn. Um, we're always posting um, personal finance tips, um, research, reports, stats, useful, interesting things around financial well-being. So if you're interested in that subject and what we're up to, um, give us a follow on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, look, thanks again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And um, I hope to catch you soon. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Blake. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about the show. The more people we can get involved, the more hope we have for making the world a better place. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.